you know, I, I, a few years ago, I was uh, in Seattle. And every time I'm there, I try to go by YWAM Publishing and kind of see them, you know, their family. And uh, I was walking through the warehouse with Tom Bragg, and he said, we don't have a book on faith. But I got to warn you guys in the front row, you should have brought your umbrellas. <laughs> I'm walking through the, the warehouse with Tom Bragney showing me everything. And then he says, we don't have a book on faith. I said, what? YWAM doesn't have a book on faith? YWAM publishers? No book on faith? I said it kind of in an impulsive way. It wasn't kind of. It was totally impulsive. <laughs> I said, I'll write you a book on faith. Because, you know, I thought YWAM's got tons of stories on faith, so I would just get a bunch of stories together and write some bridging texts, and I'd have a book, like, almost instantly. <laughs> so I said, I think I can have that for you by July. This was in November, I think. At least the first draft, you know. And so, like, about seven years later, I gave him my first draft. <laughs> what happened? Well, when I got into the Word... And I, and I try to put aside all my, what I, everything I presumed about faith and got into the word. I found out that I was full of misconceptions about faith. <laughs> and I think that's pretty common. You know, right after I told Tom Bragg that, I told my uncle, I'm going to write a book on faith. And he said, what are you going to do that for? He's an encourager. <laughs> Now, when he said that, I know why he said it. He said it because everybody thinks they already know about faith. But when I sat down and, and went through all the scriptures that had the word faith in them and meditated on them, I already had been a pioneer in Brazil and started a whole missions movement. I thought I knew all about faith, but I discovered that I had a lot to learn. And so this week, we're going to talk about that some, but I can't possibly get enough content into a, a, a week like this to really uh, help you revolutionize your life by uh, moving into a deeper level of understanding and wisdom and the practice of faith. You see, the Bible says the just shall live by faith. In the old days, that meant that you didn't ask for offerings. Uh, <laughs> but, but actually, that, that means way more than that. It's everything in our Christian walk. So I want you to be able to really come out of this week with a direction, with something that will make it, you know, we don't, in YWAM, we don't want to have kind of a conference culture where we kind of have peaks when we go to conferences and the rest of the time we're just a mess. We want to have a, a lifestyle with Jesus. Yeah. And there's nothing more foundational to that than to know how to live by faith. And it affects every part of our lives. So I, I did finally get Tom a, a, a first draft, and then we worked on it. And, and this, this is the book. It's called The Way of Faith, Thriving in Your Walk with God. So as we go through this week, you're, you're going to like what you hear. And, but I encourage, well, why not? I think they are. Why are you laughing at me? 
<laughs> I think he's laughing at me because I sound like an infomercial now. Uh, <laughs> but uh, oh, here, here's the infomercial part. The retail price of this is $16. But because you're here, if you buy it now, $6. Uh, that's because I really want you to have it. Now, if I, if you just buy it, it's six dollars. Now, if I sign it for you, it's still six dollars. I, my signature is not worth anything. <laughs> now, we also have this book that I wrote. It's called Against All Odds. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't like eccentric people. That was a little joke for those of you that can't hear me. <laughs> this is a book about being a young pioneer. How many of you are young and you want to do something significant for God? There you go. So this, you know, by the way, you those of you that aren't, you know, like in your 20s or 30s anymore, compared to eternity, we're all young. Yeah. But this is about going out and obeying God and, and then seeing his faithfulness and what he does. See, it's called against all odds. All right. That'll be six dollars also, because, you know, the truth is Tom comes to these things and he sells books so cheap that I can't get any money out of my books. at him. I got a discount on where it looks, you know, it's too different. <laughs> No, the truth is, truth is, I just want you to have it because I think it's important, very important. Yeah. So let's talk about one little aspect of faith here this morning to kind of kick things off. In Ephesians chapter one, there's only one trouble. I don't like face mics because they're they don't make any of them big enough for my head and they keep falling off and drooping and but the, the one thing about holding on to a mic is it takes you a long time to go anywhere in the bible and you know Ramona got up in Pennsylvania and made a big deal about how she can get to a place in her bible as quick as you can in your electronic bible because she has been in the word for many decades so then I was very embarrassed because it takes me so long. <laughs> so, but anyway, if, if, if yeah, I, I really shouldn't mess with her. She gets the microphone after me. Ephesians 1, 1 let's read 17 and 18. Now this is Paul writing to the Ephesians about his prayers for them. You know, if you want to get into a really fascinating meditation, go and meditate through Paul's prayers. He, in several places here, a couple of places here in Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and other places, he, he talks about the content of his prayers for his, uh, the converts, the, his disciples. It's very interesting because he boils it down to the essentials, see? You, you find out what Paul, how many think it would be interesting to know what the Apostle Paul's priorities were? You should want to know that. You're, you have the same sort of calling as he did. Not, not necessarily, you're not necessarily an apostle, but 
if you're in YWAM, that's an apostolic calling. Even if you're not exactly an apostle, your corporate calling is apostolic. And, and he was concerned with the people that had come to Jesus through him. And so he would pray for them. And the things that he prayed for them were extremely concentrated truth. This is what he says here. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? <laughs> that sounds pretty good, huh? <laughs> you know, oftentimes when Paul writes, if it was any, but any place except in the Bible, you would think it was just rhetoric. But it's because it's so powerful and so strongly stated. But it's truth. Yeah. And what I want to focus on today is just one little part of this, which is the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Now, just to mention, in, in the previous phrase, it talks about wisdom and revelation. Now, we don't usually um, associate wisdom and revelation. We think that wise people are the ones that are academics. You know, they have a PhD in divinities or something. And People that get revelations, well, they're interesting, but they're a little iffy, you know. <laughs> but, but the Bible actually ties the two things together. If you're, if you're really getting revelation from God, it will build wisdom into you. See? And uh, so that's very interesting. But I, I want to focus on the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know. This is a biblical epistemology. Does everybody say epistemology? Let's do it all together. Epistemology. And now that's, you know, you're not very enthusiastic. I think we need to do that again. You ready? We're going to epistemology, all right? Maybe you've never said that word before, but I want you to be able to go home at Thanksgiving and in a conversation around the table, just throw the word out there. And everybody will think, man, he really got smart at YWAM. I don't even know what he's talking about. Now, that's just a big fancy word for how we know things, all right? <laughs> educated people do that, have you noticed? They'll take a simple concept and make up a big word for it so that they're guaranteed some kind of status because they know how to use that big word. All it means is how you know things. You ready? I'm going to say it again. Epistemology. Oh, you said it with confidence. Now you're going to be able to blow them away at Thanksgiving. <laughs> it, it's how we know. And here... Paul says that there are things that we can only know, because he said that you may know, we can only know them by God illuminating the eyes of our understanding. In other words, it's a sort of a contemplation or a beholding of something. It's not an academic process, it's a spiritual process. And it's not subjective, it's 
objective discovery of truth. In 2 Kings chapter 6, there's a story. The, the king of Syria was all frustrated because Israel had been defeated in war, and they basically they didn't have an army. They left him with a, a few thousand soldiers, but those were sort of the guards of the king or something. And is, Syria should have been able to have their way with Israel. They should have been able to plunder and, at, at will, but everything kept going wrong for them. Every time they went and tried to do something, it was like Israel had been warned beforehand. So one day, the king of Syria, some of your Bibles will say Aram, but it's Syria. And, uh, and so he called his counselors together and he said, which one of you is a spy? Well, in that part of the world, even to this day, that makes counselors very nervous because he might just shoot the whole group to make sure he gets the spy. And so they said, no, no, king, there, there are no spies here. But there's a prophet in Israel. And everything that the king says, here they exaggerate a little bit, I think. They said, even what you say in your bedroom. Now, I don't know if God would share that with anybody. But <laughs> says, even what you say in your bedroom, God, God tells this prophet. And the prophet goes and tells the king of Israel. And that's why they're always ready for you when you go. And he said, oh, well, then does this prophet have a name? It was a, I think it was, a, I never know if it's Elijah or Elisha. Anybody else here get those two? It's one of those two. And, uh, and, and, he, and he said, do you know where he is? And they said the name of the town. So the king of Syria sends an army over there. And in the middle of the night, he surrounds the town. And when the young man that, you know, the PA of the prophet, his personal assistant, this is a young man. He gets up in the morning, he goes outside, and he sees this army around the city. And he, he comes back in the house, and he, and he goes to, says to the prophet, oh, my Lord, <laughs> what shall we do? He just knew they are going to be killed. And the, you remember what the prophet said to him? Let's just go with Elisha. Yeah, we're going with Elisha. There is somebody here that's knowledgeable and says that it actually is Elisha. So <laughs> thank you, Josh. Um, so <laughs> you remember what Elisha said to the man? He says, don't worry. More are those who are with us than those who are with them. Yeah, the only trouble is the young man knew how to count. <laughs> and I imagine him looking out the window and going, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Then he would look inside and go, one, two. <laughs> I'll try that again. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, one, two. <laughs> he must have thought, what a time for the old guy to get Alzheimer's. <laughs> He's very confused. He thinks there's more of us than there are of them. And then you remember what the prophet did? He prayed. And this is his prayer. He said, oh, Lord, open his eyes that he might see. 
And when God opened the young man's eyes, what did he see? He saw chariots of fire surrounding them and protecting them. They had never been actually in danger. Now, here's a question for you. Were those chariots of fire there before the young man saw them? Or were they there because the young man saw them? They were there before. Spiritual truth is not a projection of your imagination. It's not something that the human mind generates. It's not subjective like you've always learned all through school from people that don't believe in it at all, really. The, the chariots of fire were an objective reality. The, the spiritual things are substantive. What do I mean by that? Do you remember when they dedicated the tabernacle in the desert, what happened? The presence of God was so powerful, so concentrated, so substantive, that the priests could not go in to the tabernacle. The same thing happened when they dedicated the temple. There was a time in Jesus' life when he, they were in some busy marketplace somewhere, and he said, who touched me? And the disciples go, what? There's all kinds of people on the street. Everybody's bumping into you. How do you expect us to know who, tell you who touched you? He says, and you remember what he said? He said, someone touched me because I felt, and sometimes it's translated power, sometimes it's translated virtue, but I felt power and virtue go out from me. So that power and virtue was in a place in him, and it went to another place out of him. You know, if you think about the nature of reality, what came first, material stuff or spiritual reality? If you go back far enough, there was no uh, physical material reality at all. There wasn't a planet. There was not a star. There, there wasn't even a molecule or a, an electron or a lowly quark. There, were, there was no material reality. And then at some point in time, boom, there was. I don't like that. This has a thing that deadens sudden sounds. I really wanted to get that boom out there because they call it the Big Bang, you know. What happened in, and then all the stuff was there, see? What happened in between no stuff and stuff? You see, before there was any material, before it existed, there were decisions being made, there were plans being uh, worked out, there, there, were, there was love and harmony and joy and peace, there were purposes, there, there was intelligence working and there was power, that none of that depended on the material universe we live in. So if you're looking for the roots of reality, you're looking to the invisible world. That's where reality came from. Derived reality is physical reality, material reality. The original, eternal reality comes from the spiritual realm. So it's more foundational than the material. 
Now, when God created the material, he created something very important, and it's always going to be with us forever. You're going to have a body in eternity. Don't worry, you won't look like the disease you died of. You know, they're good. But, uh, but that's not the most foundational reality. If you want to go to where wisdom comes from, if you want to go where ancient knowledge comes from, if you want to tie into the roots of everything that is, go to the invisible realm. Now, what happened in between stuff, no stuff, and then stuff? I gave this once in Latin America, and they were translating it staff. <laughs> but it's stuff. It's not staff. What happened in between there? God spoke. So this pavilion here and the chair you're sitting on, all of this is the word of God secondhand. The raw material that all material reality came from is the word of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And through him, everything that was created was created. And nothing that exists came into being without him. And even to this day, he sustains this material universe through the word of his power. So when that young man had his eyes open, reality didn't change. Truth didn't change. What changed was his perception. Do you get that? You know, our journey in this life is not a journey of self-discovery or uh, some sort of a, uh, a, a gradual scene together of the universe that pleases us. You know, That's actually the mentality of society now. <laughs> I was very proud of myself because I was talking about the postmodern world and everything. Now, now they tell me that's, that's old stuff. Uh, it's metamodern now. Mm. You think I'm not with it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and really, the core of this mentality is that I create my own universe. See? That is just not true. That's completely irrational, and it's completely unhooked from reality. Uh, reality is, and we have to discover it. You don't invent it. You can try to invent it, but you're just going to make up crazy stuff, and it's not going to work. You'll try to break the law of God, but you'll break yourself on it because it's the expression of what really is. So that young man, he had a discovery that day. He found out there were chariots of fire around them protecting him from the armies of Syria. And then, of course, the, Elisha didn't even use the chariots of fire. He just prayed and blinded everybody and, and took them off. And instead of killing them, he gave them a big banquet. And then they, Syria became Israel's friend, solved the whole problem. You know, when, when God spoke to Pam and I, well, first of all, let's look at their conversation there. The young man, before he saw the chariots of fire, what was he seeing? He was seeing his material circumstances. And in the material circumstances, there was no hope. 
they just could not have stood up to a whole Syrian army, the two of them. They weren't even soldiers. They were talkers. So he, before God opened his eyes, he was seeing the material circumstances or what, what we've learned to call the facts in school because your education was materialistic. What did he see after God opened his eyes? He saw the truth. Do you see that uh, the, the material circumstances did not reflect the, the whole situation? It did, the material circumstances did not reflect the truth of their situation. It was just one dimension of it. But they had to see more than that to understand what was true. So there's a difference between the circumstances of your life and the truth about your life. See? Now, I'm not suggesting, two things I'm not suggesting. One, don't live in denial. I see Christians doing this all the time, and it's not healthy. If you don't like some circumstance, you just deny that it even exists. That's one of the misconceptions of faith, by the way. In Jesus, you just don't exist. I prophesy against you. Well, it still exists. <laughs> so don't live in denial. You don't have to be afraid of any material circumstance because the truth is transcendent. Yeah. So, you know... Learn to live with it. <laughs> At least see it clearly. We should be people who see things clearly and live transparently. And we don't make stuff up and try to deny the reality. Okay. But the second thing I don't want you to do is I don't want you to give in to negative circumstances because the truth is above that and can overcome it. Amen? All right. When God spoke to Pam and I about going to Brazil, we were actually in her YWAM school. I noticed that Ramona's very clever. She never told you that she hasn't ever done a DTS. She just said, my YWAM school. Did you notice that? She didn't say my DTS because she's never done one. And actually, neither have I. <laughs> It's because we came into YWAM before they even came up with the term DTS, all right? That's the ancient ones. <laughs> so Pam was doing her school, and I was doing it too, because I was with her in Hilo, Hawaii. This is before we even had anything in Kona. And uh, as we went through the school, I started to, we knew we were going to Latin America, but I started to feel like it was Brazil, and I didn't know how to tell her because she had been studying Spanish in college and everything. For those of you who don't know, we don't speak Spanish in Brazil. And so, so I'm thinking, man, she's headed that way, and now I'm feeling Brazil. I, I don't know how to tell her. And we hadn't even been married a year, you know, but finally I got my courage up, and I said, man, I don't know how to tell you this, but I kind of feel like God keeps nudging me about Brazil. And she said, oh, what a relief. I was feeling the same thing, and I didn't know how to tell you. <laughs> so that was in November. 
And by March, we were on our final flight down into Brazil. So you'll notice there wasn't time in there to kind of get together a group of supporters or plan or anything like that. It was just kind of boom, boom, boom. And that flight was an Avianca flight. That's Colombian National Airlines. Back then it was a step of faith even to take one of their flights. <laughs> and, and we flew out of Bogota, Colombia and we we're flying over the Amazon. So I'm sitting on the plane looking out the window thinking about our circumstances. And, you know, I had $6. We didn't have a bank account anywhere either. I did, that was it. That was our, you know, that was our whatever it was. Uh, it's not even enough money to change. Nobody wants to change $6. So and we're flying on a one-way ticket. We didn't have a return ticket. We didn't have a visa. We didn't actually know anybody in Brazil. We had a letter from a missionary saying that he, he had found us a place to live and a place to study the language. Uh, but we didn't actually know the guy. And, and uh, so we're flying into the totally unknown. And we're flying over the Amazon jungle. And it just keeps going by underneath you. And you never get to the end of it. For hours. It looks like broccoli on a tabletop. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, man, everything that I know in this world, family, friends, climate, food, language, culture, everything is just behind us getting farther and farther away. And we're going into the unknown and we have no resources. So when I'm thinking thoughts like that, I look worried. I'm pretty transparent. I'm painfully white, you know, that makes you harder to hide anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> so at one point, Pam's there reading a book and she looks over at me and she says, you look worried. What's wrong with you? I said, well, we're going one-way tickets and we don't have any money and we don't know anybody. If they ask us one question at immigration, they're going to put us back on the plane, send us back. So what was I describing for her? Our material circumstances. I was just citing the facts. And she looked at me like I had suddenly gone crazy or something. She said, well, is God going to provide or is, not? is he not? <laughs> so here I'm talking to her about the facts. What was she talking to me about? The truth. Yeah. So we got there, and, and the guy that wrote us a letter, who I'm grateful to to this day. You see, our church in Brazil, in Brazil, our church in Hawaii, my wife's from Hawaii. You, you can pray for us. We, we have to go to Hawaii all the time. But our church there had promised to send us $50 a month, see? And this guy had written us a letter saying that our language study would be $50 a month and our room and board would be 70. So I kind of thought, well, 50 coming in, 120 going out, that doesn't work. But it's not such a big gap. So I just, you know, we'll do it by faith. 
But when we actually got there and talked to our language teacher, it, was, it would have been $50 a month if there were one of us studying one hour a day, but we were two and we were going to study four hours a day. So the language study was $400 a month. Yeah, I got excited too. <laughs> and, and then when we went over to where we were going to be staying, which was in an apartment with a Brazilian family, we didn't have enough money to have our own place. And so we found out that it wasn't really $70 a month. It was $70 each. So that was $140. So now it's $540 a month. So our total support isn't even a tithe of what we need every month. And that's without buying a bar of soap or anything. The missionary was embarrassed when we found this out and he left. And so I take Pam to see our room where we're going to be staying. And it's, I should explain to you, Pam grew up in Hawaii. Her uncle was a famous developer on the island of Oahu. And he developed much of the windward side of Oahu. He was a big deal. And uh, her parents made a good living selling the houses that her uncle built. And later on, my father-in-law went into politics. He got mad about a dugout in Little League. And he, and he went into politics, but he got elected. So he had a whole career. For many years, he was the minority whip in the State House of Representatives. So when I met Pam, she lived at the Mid-Pack Country Club in a five-bedroom home. She had her own little suite, you know, with her bathroom and everything. And Daddy bought her a car when she was 15 so she could go and come from Punahou, which is the most exclusive private school in the state. She studied the same school that Barack Obama studied at. And uh, well, you, you get the picture, right? They had a, a solar heated swimming pool in the backyard. That, and, and that's how Pam lived. And then she married me. And now I'm showing her where we're going to be living. And it's a little melancholy blue room, tiny, and has very basic furniture. Like the mattress wasn't even a proper mattress. It's just a piece of foam rubber. And she sat down on that and burst into tears. So I, I patted her on the shoulder. <laughs> I don't know what to say. We, we hadn't even been married a year Be totally honest. I've been married 46 years now. I, I still don't know what to say. This is an enduring mystery. And I don't know if any male ever figured it out. But anyway, I'm patting her on the shoulder. And, and I also had this big knot in my throat. And I thought, if I try to talk now, I'm going to cry too. So I went to use the bathroom. <laughs> Well, you know, we hadn't been married a year yet. I, I think the husband should try to be masculine at least the first year. When I flushed the toilet, a pipe fell off the wall and started spraying water all over. I finally got that stuck back on. I'm all damp. And I went outside and I said, oh, God, what have I done? Here, we're here, and this is terrible, and we can't even afford this. And, and, uh, <laughs> and you know, in the end of the month's going to come, and we're not going to be able to pay our bills, and it's going to be embarrassing for the gospel and for YWAM, and, you know, 
and so I'm telling God all this stuff. What was I telling God? The material circumstances, the facts. And so the Lord began to speak to me. Now, understand something. When I say God spoke to me and then I have a bunch of words in there, that doesn't actually happen. There aren't that many words. But you can't tell the story without the words, all right? You can't just say sort of, and then I, and then God, and then I. It'd be a bad story. <laughs> Usually it's his spirit witnessing with your spirit. And the reason I point this out is because God talks to all of you more than you think. Unless you're schizophrenic or something. I don't have any guarantees, but the... <laughs> But he, he communicates with us a lot. And if we, we're expecting words, then sometimes we miss it. So, but anyway, I'm there and, and God says, now, Jim, did I call you to Brazil? I said, well, I thought so. <laughs> How many of you have ever gotten slippery with God? He says, well, uh, did your leaders pray and confirm your coming? I said, well, yes, they did, but I'm pretty sure they were irresponsible. <laughs> he said, now, uh, did I provide for you to get here? And I couldn't deny that. We had three very clear miracles without telling anybody about our need where God provided in the last day to get from Hawaii to the mainland, to get from the mainland to Colombia, and to get from Colombia to Brazil. So I said, yeah, you, you provided for me to get here. He said, if I, if I got you here, can I not take care of you here? I said, well, <laughs> theoretically. <laughs> what was happening in that conversation? I'm telling God the facts and he's reminding me of the truth. Yeah. So one of the first things we discovered when we got there to Brazil was that there was going to be a, a retreat of foreign missionaries and Lauren Cunningham. How many of you have heard of Lauren Cunningham? Yeah. He was going to be the main speaker. So I prayed, you know, and said, oh, God, I know we can't go because we don't have any money, but it would be so great if Lauren introduced us to, the, to, to Brazil, you know. That would be a great leap ahead because I'm, I'm 24 and Pam's 21, and we're going to try to get established in this new country. So I prayed. The next day, an Australian guy that hardly knew us, he worked with WEC, you know, he came to us, he said, I sold my little Volkswagen bug and I asked God what to do with the tithes and he told me to give part of them to you. So he handed me an envelope. Now, just a little thing here about, um, if people hand you an envelope like that, don't open it right in front of them. Because <laughs> if you're, you need a lot and it's just a little, you might do this. Yeah, so it's better just to wait till they leave. So I waited for him to leave and I opened it up and it was exactly what we needed for that conference. See? So I got a free ride there with some other missionaries and we headed off. We got there and we registered and paid and, and then they introduced us to the organizer and he said, oh, you're with YWAM, then you know about Lauren. I said, what? 
He said, oh, he's got a problem in his voice. The doctor won't let him talk for seven weeks, not even on the phone. So he's not coming. I said, well, what, what am I doing here? <laughs> but we already had paid, so, <laughs> and, and our ride wasn't going back for a week. So we just stayed and enjoyed the pool. That was a good thing because we didn't see a pool again for, I don't know, 15 years or something. <laughs> But we had many conversations during the week that go like this. Some, some missionary that was experienced and that we looked up to and wanted to learn from would shake our hand and say, oh, so nice to see young people here. Who are your parents? <laughs> yeah. I'd say, well, we, we have parents. They didn't find us under cabbage leaf. <laughs> but, but our parents are back in the States. We're here as missionaries. Oh, well, who with? Say, uh, youth with a mission? Never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a very well kept secret. <laughs> you know, they say, well, what do you want to do here? And we'd say, well, we want to mobilize and, and disciple young people to participate in world evangelization. They'd say, um, Brazilian young people? We go, yeah. Uh, that's the kind they have around here. <laughs> I say, are you going to have guys and girls? You say, well, God made them male and female. Yeah. yeah. They say, well, how much are you going to pay? I say, no, I don't think you understand. We don't want employees. We want brothers and sisters that will stand shoulder to shoulder with us in equality and fight for God's cause in the world. That's <laughs> ah, never going to work. Nobody's going to work for you if you don't pay them. And then they would talk to us a little while about how it wasn't going to work. And then they'd ask the question, who's going to pay the bills? I'd go, <laughs> Jesus? <laughs> So what was happening in those conversations? They were telling me what their interpretation of the facts was. And I was trying to hold on to the truth, to the word of the Lord to us. See? But it wasn't just the foreign missionaries. I remember a couple of years went by and we were living in, well, grinding third world poverty, to tell you the truth. <laughs> Probably in a year, we had closed our office in the afternoon without any money or food for the next day. And every time we saw God provide in some way, but it wasn't anything luxurious, I'll tell you that. Not like our porta potties here. I see they're deluxe porta potties. <laughs> we just had outhouses. <laughs> and so we didn't have electricity on our property. And we were, and so one evening I was preaching at this little Presbyterian church in our town. And afterwards, one of the guys came up to me, a man, and he shook my hand. He said, how much did you need to pull in electricity from the farmhouse there? And I had just done a, the calculation. So I said, this much. He said, I'll help you with that. You come to my house. Here's the address. You be there Wednesday at six o'clock. I'll help you with that. So Wednesday at five o'clock, I was already on the street corner. <laughs> we didn't have a car, so you can't depend too much on 
public transport. And I didn't want to be late, I'll tell you that. And, but I didn't want to be pitiful either. So I stayed on the street corner until six o'clock. And then I went down there and rang his bell. And he came and answered the door. And he sat me on one side of the table. He sat on the other. And he had a pen in his hand in his checkbook. And he would write a little bit. And then he would shake the pen in my face like this and exhort me. This that you want to do, it's not going to work. I'm sitting there thinking, this is the first Brazilian to give us an offering, and he doesn't think it's good. <laughs> he says, every nation has its call. You Americans are called to reach the world, the rest of the world. We Brazilians are called to reach Brazilians. So what was he reminding me of? What he saw as the facts. It was his interpretation of the facts. What had always happened up till that time. I, I didn't actually say the truth to him. <laughs> I'm not crazy. He, he hadn't signed the check yet. And I wasn't going to argue with him. <laughs> but inside I'm holding on to the word of the Lord. So here's the thing people. The truth will prevail. You know many times. Circumstances are against us, aren't they? How many of you here this morning, you have some circumstances that are against you? Raise your hand. It does, does good for your soul. Yeah. But the truth is always for us. You think of what God has planned for you as your inheritance for eternity. Little children... We are now called the, the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we are to be. We know that as we contemplate his glory, we're transformed from glory to glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And it's about seeing, isn't it? So eh, we need to learn to live above the circumstances, not in denial, Fully recognizing what's going on around us, but knowing that there's something that's transcendent, which is the truth. You know, last, well, it's not last February now, but it's February of 2000, when just before COVID came down on the world, you're just getting some indications. We had a thing in Brazil called the sin. Now, they... They marketed it this way. They didn't try to talk about personalities or music or any of that. They didn't even try to make it attractive. They just said it's going to be about mobilizing for missions. And, the, the, you know, Brazilians are known for spontaneity and flexibility, and which means you don't always know if they're going to follow through on stuff. And so they... <laughs> They wanted to make sure that people said they were coming were really coming because you know it's a big commitment to rent a stadium, so they they made them go online and pay a deposit to guarantee their place. So they opened up the Morumbi, big soccer stadium. It filled up in like three or four hours. There were no more places. So they opened a second stadium, and that filled up in a week or two. No more places. So they opened up a third stadium in Brasilia, a different city entirely, and that filled up. So February 8th came, and I was in Brasilia. It, the program started at 9 in the morning, 
the stadium packed mostly with young people. And I, I came onto the platform and spoke at four in the afternoon. These young people had been standing on the infield and all through the stadium for since nine in the morning in the rain. And they showed no discouragement, tiredness, nothing. They just were there, right there, and they want to hear the word of the Lord, and they wanted to worship God. They were ready for anything. And I remember it. How they told me that Brazilians couldn't be missionaries. And those were considered to be the facts. But the truth was, God had other plans. And guess what prevailed? The truth. Hallelujah. I don't know how to tell you how full my heart was that day. But not, it doesn't depend just on the sin. That's just one day that it hit me. Actually, the, the country that sends out the largest number of missionaries in the world is the United States. But now the second largest missionary sending nation in the world is Brazil. So I've learned that the word of the Lord prevails over the material circumstances. I don't really like calling it the facts because the spiritual world has facts too, but it's just kind of shorthand because you'll remember it better if we say the facts against the truth. But um, now in your life, there are things for some of you that are frightening you. You may not use the word fear, you probably talk about worry or anxiety or something like that. Those are nicer descriptions we give to low-grade chronic fear. <laughs> yeah. I want you today, you that are worried, you that are, in truth, you're afraid. I want you to rise above that. But I don't want you to do it by trying to generate an attitude out of your willpower. I want you to actually see. Did, did that young man generate a perception of chariots of fire out of his willpower? I will see chariots. I will. He didn't even know what he was supposed to see. It was a reality. He saw. There are some others here who you have a little nub of a big dream in your heart, but you're... kind of giving up on it because the circumstances are so difficult. It looks so impossible. I want you to see too. You know, we need for this next generation bigger dreams than what we had in my generation. And it, it's more complicated. But that doesn't really matter. That's just circumstances. The truth is God prepared good works for you that you might walk in them. And those were prepared as he made you in your mother's womb, Ephesians 2.10. And you're perfectly fitted for the dream that he puts in your heart. And that's the truth. And he will be with you to give you victory. That might not be in a week like we want. 
It may take many years, but the word of the Lord will prevail in your life as well. Because the word of the Lord is truth. 